You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The first time I investigated the organizing uh, swinger scene, uh, for Skipping Towards Gamora, a book I wrote uh, some years ago, which is now available on audible.com, by the way. I, I was surprised to learn that it was very much a matriarchy, that women really ran it. And women were really the the driving force, the, the power in the scene rested in the hands of the women. And it was explained to me by these guys that I met uh, who were part of the swinging scene with their wives uh, that the whole thing hinged upon women feeling comfortable and safe. And that if the women, if the wives and the girlfriends felt unsafe or uh, harassed or bullied or even annoyed uh, that the whole thing would collapse if the women all walked out. The whole thing wouldn't work. So guys who were in any way rude, guys who made women at all uncomfortable, uh, were immediately shown the door. And all it took for a woman at a play party to get rid of somebody who was harassing her or just making her uncomfortable was to say something to the organizers, to say something to the bouncers. And that guy was disappeared taken out in a helicopter and thrown into the ocean several thousand miles away, just gone out of that play party. And this kind of shocked me because the, the, the common trope of swinging is that the husbands want to do it and they get their wives to agree to it uh, or their girlfriends. And usually there's some begging or pleading, even manipulation that goes on. And, but in the process of actually getting involved, the script flips that women may arrive at swinging, not all of them, some of them may arrive at organized swinging uh, somewhat reluctantly, maybe a little dubious, maybe skeptical. They arrive skeptical. They fall in love with it. They realize how much power they have and they refuse to leave. So women arrive, women get into it reluctantly sometimes, uh, but once they're in, they're in and they ain't going. And I, I got a letter recently in Savage Love from somebody who had talked his girlfriend into cuckolding him, that he had, this was his fantasy all his life, to be cuckolded by his girlfriend, his girlfriend sleep with other guys, and you know him being sort of humiliated by that, but turned on by it and telling him about it. And she started fucking other guys, and then he decided that this wasn't turning him on anymore and wanted her to stop, and she said no. She said that this was actually a discovery process for her, and that she couldn't and wouldn't be monogamous to him going forward after he had brought this out in her. Anyways, irony of ironies. On Reddit, a couple of weeks ago, there was this amazing post to one of their advice forums from a guy who talked his girlfriend into an open relationship. And by talked, I mean manipulated, forced, uh, issued an ultimatum. And by talked, I mean dictated, an ultimatum. Reading from his original post, I spoke to her about this, his desire for an open relationship, and, well, it broke her heart at the time. She was sobbing on me the whole night of me talking to her about it, saying she wanted to be monogamous and she didn't like the thought of an open relationship at all. She asked for a couple of weeks to think about it, which happened, but when we spoke about it again, she told me she still didn't want to do it, and I had to tell her at this point that it was this or break up, as I didn't feel fulfilled. And he goes on in this post to say the reason he wanted to fuck other women was that his girlfriend is not attractive, she's big, big for him is synonymous with not attractive, uh, and that he could do better, but he didn't want to leave her because she was so good to him and so nice to him and took such good care of him, which is what nannies and butlers are for, but he had a girlfriend doing that for him. And irony of ironies, they open their relationship up at his insistence and she's getting laid like crazy. 
by hot guys who are into her. And he can't find another partner. He can't get pussy to save his life. And he was asking, how do I shut this down? Now that I've forced this open relationship on my girlfriend, now that I see that she is much more in demand than I will ever be, and perhaps that's because you, if you're a listener, are a manipulative and unattractive piece of shit, uh, how do I shut it off for her? And the answer is you don't. Hopefully, if you go read this story, Jezebel.com had a great write-up of it. Just search Jezebel and dude's demand for an open relationship backfires spectacularly to, to see their long post really picking it apart. But the answer for him, of course, is you don't close it down. The answer is hopefully she ran off with the big tattooed guy he saw her making out with outside a bar and dumped his ass. So guys out there, I know lots of guys want to be in open relationships. I know a lot of cuckold guys listen to my show. I'm cuckold positive, which a lot of folks in the advice industrial complex are not. Uh, Careful what you wish for. Really think it through. It is so much easier for women to get dick than it is for guys to get pussy. It just is. Dick. There are tons of it. We're throwing it around. Pussy? Women are more careful. And they have to be. You know, there's some people argue that it's biology. What makes drives women to be choosier? One egg a month versus billions of sperm a day or a week. Uh, but there's also social factors. There's slut-shaming. There's violence, intimate partner violence, the consequences of impulsive sexual activity, rape, sexually transmitted infections, all fall disproportionately onto women's shoulders. That can instill a certain reluctance to be as impulsive slash reckless slash spontaneous as men. Anyway, it's a great post. It's a great object lesson. Some people are thinking it might be fake because it's a little, a little bit like a female revenge fantasy, but from my experience, I'm going to call this real. I'm going to call this guy's post real. I'm going to go to Jezebel to read the whole thing because I have encountered these stories in the past. At the impetus of the dude, the couple opens the relationship. The straight couple opens the relationship. And she does so much better out there in open relationship land than he ever could. But then he wants to shut it down. Careful, guys. Careful what you wish for because she just might get it. Okay, coming up on today's show, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, frequent guest, super smart on corgasms. Those are exercise-induced orgasms, which are actually a thing that happens to 10% of the people you see at the gym. That and your questions all coming up in today's Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. I have a weird question. I'm, uh, I'm originally from Portugal, and I have a friend back home that I think he has a weird fixation with young boys. He's a 29-year-old gay man. Um, I've been friends with him for about 10 years. I've seen him have girlfriends. I mean, it is a Catholic country after all, and his friend and his family is very religious. Um, he gradually started out, started coming out of the closet, and now he's assumed gay. He only dates men. Uh, they're very kinkish, and they're very, they're getting progressively younger. When I was there last fall, he was dating a 17-year-old. He was 28 at the time, my friend. The kid, he was a little asshole in my opinion. Um, maybe he didn't know any better, but he turned out to be this huge gold digger, which I find is also a pattern with my friend. His family is very wealthy. And I don't know if he um, likes feeling like he's in control or if the boyfriends are so young and immature that they get blinded by all the bling. But yeah, they're just getting younger and younger. Anyway, uh, the part that makes me really uncomfortable is 
really close friends to the family of one of the exes, particularly of, of his little brother. Um, he grew very attached to the kid when they were dating. He was a toddler at the time. And for the past five or six years, uh, it's been since I came to North America, he uh, has visits with the kid, buys him a bunch of expensive gifts, takes him out for lunch, posts Facebook pics of, of him and with, with a kid who's like eight at the time now. From what I get, it's only specific to this kid. Uh, and I wouldn't be making such a big deal out of it if his boyfriends weren't always so jailbaity. Uh, or should I be worried? I mean, I don't think he would ever molest a child, but isn't that what everyone says? A pedophile is someone who's sexually attracted to and interested in uh, children, prepubescent children. That your friend at 29 is so insecure or immature that he has sought out uh, teenage boyfriends, you know, 17, 18, 19 year old boyfriends isn't proof that he is also a pedophile, that he simultaneously has the, this interest in young adult males and 17, 18, 19 years old, pretty much adults in the 17 year old's case, actually adults in the 18 and 19 year old's case, that he has this desire, this attraction to these young men and also this affection for children or for this particular eight-year-old child is not proof that he's a pedophile. It's not proof that, you know, his floor is going to continue to drop until he's dating eight-year-olds. A person can be uh, attracted to adults and also very much enjoy spending time with children and have a rapport and affection for a child or for many children. You know, I am with uh, a man, I have a husband, uh, and we have a kid, and I also love to play with the neighbor kids. And I would hate for people to think because I like their kids and think their uh, little boys and girls are fun to goof around with or toss around on the trampoline, that there must be something else at work there. Uh, Cause there ain't that said, you know, go into details about what this weird random shit might be, but you have a concern and it is incumbent upon people to speak the fuck up when they have concerns. And you're concerned for your friend, and I think you should speak to him. You, as a friend, should be willing to say to him, you know, it's a little ridiculous that all your boyfriends are so young and immature. What is it that you're after? Just easily impressed, easily manipulated young dudes that you really can't have any sort of lasting relationship with or adult connection to? Because if that's the case, you know, there's a, the clock will run out. There's a certain point at which these guys aren't going to want to swing from his dick anymore. And if he wants something more lasting and more mature, he's going to have to go for peers as opposed to boys. And by boys, I mean young adult men. As for concerns about his fixation on young kids, I worry that, you know, there's always this, there's this cultural stereotype. I mean, the blood libel against homosexuals, against gay men in particular, is that we're all pedophiles, that we recruit children. So while your spidey senses are tingling because your friend who is 29, whose boyfriends have been 17, 18, 19, is also spending a lot of time with an eight-year-old boy, my spidey senses are tingling because we're kind of invoking that blood libel against gay people, that if somebody is gay and male and young-ish, he's still just 29 and attracted to other guys who are young-ish, that he must be also attracted to boys. And that ain't necessarily so. So you need to tread carefully here, lest you nuke your relationship. That said, if you honestly believe, if your spidey senses aren't just tingling but burning, and you honestly believe that there's something going on 
with this child who is, it was hard to follow, but his brother's ex-girlfriend's kid. You think there's something there that worries you. If you're concerned for the welfare and safety of this child, you should speak the fuck up. You should say something. It may be enough for him to hear that his behavior, the young, young, young boyfriends, and then his interest in this young man, those things together are freaking people out, causing people to question his judgment. That may be enough for him to, to wake up. If he is indeed a pedophile, a lot of pedophiles uh, fly under the radar because it is literally the worst thing you could think of someone. So people typically avoid thinking it and they rely on people's inhibitions. They rely on people's inability to see what is happening in front of them to get away with molesting children. If indeed the pedophile is a child molester, not all pedophiles are child molesters. Uh, There's an organization called virtuous pedophiles. They have a website, virtuouspedophiles.com. I helped inspire the formation of this group when I wrote a series of columns on gold star pedophiles years ago which are guys who struggle against these hardwired attractions and desires all their lives and never touch a child. We need to make a distinction culturally between child molesters and pedophiles. And it is as James Cantor, who's been on the show many times, he's a sex researcher and a clinical psychologist and editor in chief of the scientific journal, sexual abuse points out that it does not help to protect children when we fail to draw a distinction between someone who is attracted to children, someone who's a pedophile and someone who acts on that attraction, someone who molests children. The former, the pedophile who does not act on it deserves some support and some small share of credit because that is a tremendous burden to walk with and to struggle against all your life. The latter deserve to be prosecuted and incarcerated. People actually harm children. So in the interest of protecting this child, if indeed this child is in danger or being molested by your friend, you might have to risk your friendship. You might have to say, look, I'm not accusing you of anything, but the very young boyfriends and the passion that you show for this other boy your post-pubescent adult-ish male boyfriends and this pre-pubescent boy who's all over your Facebook and Instagram, it has me concerned. And then see what he says. And, and like I was saying, a lot of pedophiles fly under the radar. If he is indeed molesting this boy, he may think that nobody can tell, nobody suspects. And then he may go on from this child that he's victimized to another, to another, to another, because no one ever confronted him about it. But you could be the one to confront him about it. And wake him up and see what he says. Send him to virtuous pedophiles. If he confirms to you that he has harmed this child, then there are other phone calls to make to this child's parent or parents to the authorities. But right now you have certain cultural assumptions and biases that you're working with. A leap from attracted to young men to attracted to prepubescent boys. Plenty of adult straight men in the world who are attracted to the 15-year-old girls they send down the runways as models in Paris and Rome and Milan and New York who are not attracted to eight-year-old girls. It does not follow that if, if somebody finds the post-pubescent adolescent body, male or female, attractive, that they find the prepubescent adolescent body attractive. And that's not generally the assumption we make about straight men. When straight men sit around joking about watching the Olympics and watching the gymnasts who are all 14 and 15 and 16 years old, we don't leap to, you must be fucking seven-year-olds. But we make that leap with gay men, particularly gay men who have a dating history like your friends. And I would tell you to leave it alone if 
I weren't concerned about the possibility here that a child might be being harmed. So you're going to have to speak up here and risk your friendship. And finally, I think you meant twinkish, not kinkish. Hello, Dan. I am a 29-year-old lady married to a man. We have a son who's five. And my question is that we got married when I was 20, 23, and we've been married for almost six years. And I'm bi, and in our monogamy situation, I'm not allowed to sleep with women, kiss women, do anything with anyone outside of our relationship. My husband's also not interested in having a threesome or having anyone else come into the relationship. And I'm just starting to feel really stifled by the world of monogamy. And it's part of me feels like that's sort of an irrational feeling and that I'm putting too much emphasis on the importance of my sexuality in my life. I mean, I have this wonderful man, this wonderful home. On the surface, everything is like absolutely great but I, I just can't figure out how important this really is to me. One thing I guess should, that should tip me off is that I still keep thinking about it, you know, year after year. So I guess what I'm asking for is if there's no way for me to get that need met and I feel like our sexual life is not enough for me, is that a reason to end an otherwise great marriage? I can't tell you that this is a good enough reason to end an otherwise great marriage. I am the dude who coined price of admission as something we all have to do to get into relationships. And maybe pussy is the price of admission for you to be with this great guy in this great marriage with your great little family. But I will say this, that divorce courts are littered with marriages that ended for exactly the reason that your marriage may very well end at some point because you're sexually unfulfilled. You feel sexually stifled and constrained in this relationship your partner is perhaps a little unreasonable and values monogamy, yours in particular, over fulfillment and joy, I'm going to go out on a limb and say. And you're both, in a way, driving this toward a precipice, a brink, a cliff, where a choice could be made that ends the marriage. And you know, you may precipitate the crisis by fucking some girl, and then he finds out, and then he has to decide if that really is for him, a marriage extinction level event, a relationship extinction level event that you fucked somebody else. You know, I look at this and I think, God, this is another case where the monogamy default, the monogamous expectation, where the pressures of monogamy is very likely going to tear a relationship apart, very likely going to end a marriage. And then when you fuck somebody else, people aren't going to blame monogamy and an irrational attachment to it or fixation on it for the end of your marriage, they're going to blame non-monogamy for it. She wasn't monogamous and the marriage ended rather than she was forced to be monogamous. And that wasn't something that she could do. And the marriage ended and rather than give his wife permission and an allowance and accommodation to go out and eat a little pussy every now and then he dragged her into divorce court and left her. I really feel like I'm trapped sometimes into tinkering with the machinery of monogamy. The same way that Harry Blackman complained after years on the Supreme Court of having to tinker with the machinery of death when it came to issuing Supreme Court rulings on the death penalty. And he one day said, I am done tinkering with the machinery of death. Sometimes I just want to say I'm done tinkering with the machinery of monogamy. You would be happier in this marriage. This marriage would be stronger if you could fuck a girl every once in a while if you were a little freer sexually, and that can be said of so many people in their marriages, that they would be happier and more content 
to stay in their marriages if staying in their marriages didn't mean being so unfree sexually forever. If staying in their marriages didn't mean having to sacrifice what someone who isn't experiencing the desires that you are experiencing will regard as trifling and unimportant compared with this man that you love, this child that you have to get, this marriage, this relationship. That's just not the way sex works. It's just not the way desire works. Desire is powerful. It eats away at people. Resentment grows and builds. Pressure builds until you give your fucking junk what your fucking junk demands. And yet we've built our relationships around this model that if somebody acts on that, it is explosive. We have packed explosives into the hearts of our marriages and then we are shocked when they explode in our fucking faces. But right now there is no way for you to get this need met under the agreement that you've made with your husband, under the monogamous commitment that you entered into willingly once upon a time. But now the pressure has built and you either need to renegotiate that commitment. You need to reopen those negotiations, which doesn't sound like you'll get very far or you need to go without or you need to risk it. And in the end, almost everyone risks it. In the end, almost everyone seizes the opportunity when it comes along. Some people are capable of doing what they need to do to stay married and stay sane and they never get caught and they're happier and more content for having a little bit of a secret double life and they're happier and more content cheating and staying than they would be leaving and being honest or cheating and confessing and being left. And you're going to have to make those choices and compromises all on your own and without much cultural support. Because however this plays out, if your husband is the monogamous one and you slept with somebody else, you will be the bad guy. And you'll be slammed for it. When actually the villain here is our inability to rethink this fetishistic attachment to monogamy as a defining characteristic of a long-term commitment, to sexual exclusivity as more important to two people in a relationship, in a marriage, than anything else. Let me give you one shred of perhaps constructive advice after all that despairing wailing I just engaged in. Uh, Your husband may feel threatened by you being with someone else sexually because he doesn't know anybody who's in an open or monogamous relationship that's successful. And the irony is he probably does know people who are in successful, open, or monogamous relationships. He just doesn't know he knows it. Because most people, particularly straight people who are in open or monogamous relationships or even poly relationships, aren't out to their friends, their families, their neighbors about their relationship and how it works and how non-monogamy actually works for them and has made their relationship stronger. Right now, monogamy is working against you and making your relationship weaker. It has you thinking about ending your marriage. So maybe it would help if your husband met some people who were in open relationships and were willing to honestly disclose that to him and talk to him about how that works. And you might have to be a manipulative little shit about bringing those people into his life. If you sit him down and say, Julia and John here are in an open marriage and I want them to talk to us about how it works. Your husband may seize up, react defensively, feel like you're gaming him and playing him and pressuring him. But if you know a couple who are in one of those relationships and you engage with them socially and bring them into your life and it, let them get to know your husband, let your husband get to know them. And it comes up and it comes out in its due course. 
that may be the thing that brings your husband around. That's a long campaign. That's a long war. And in the meantime, you have to go without or you have to get out. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old straight male. And I have a question about uh, ejaculation. Uh, When I come at home and I masturbate, it can go one of two ways. When I ejaculate, sometimes it will just go everywhere. Sometimes it will just fall out onto my hand. When I'm with a girl, if I'm getting a hand job or I pull out after a blow job or during sex, it's going to shoot everywhere. And I was wondering, is that normal? And, and why that happens? Is it to do with arousal? Is it to do with certain stimuli, something like that? It has to do indeed with arousal. It also has to do with some other shit as well. It has to do with the length of time between orgasms. If you came earlier that day or just hours ago, your next orgasm, your subsequent orgasm, may be less intense, less less volume, less semen to go flying out of you. It depends on the build, how long you are on the edge. The longer you're uh, stroking it, the longer you're um, you know, going at it, the longer that hand job goes on, the, the more times you approach the edge and then back off a little bit and then reapproach the edge, the more fluids your body is drawing into the uh, glands, the, the many glands that produce your, your ejaculate. And so there's more ejaculate to send flying out of your body the longer that hand job was, the longer that blow job was, the longer you were banging away at it. So really, I think there are three things at play here. Arousal, duration, and when you blew your load last. Hi there. Um, I have a question about how to sort of break it off in a nice and kind way with someone. If you've had a few dates and it's just not going to have that longer term potential, um, but you want to sort of part ways in a kind way. So the background on this is that I went out with a woman on a couple of dates. We went out twice on more formal dates, but had some informal interactions. We texted a lot. We chatted a lot. And um, it took us a while to get together for both of the two sort of more formal dates. Um, we went to dinner, had a nice little chit chat, but because of our busy schedules and because we both travel for work, it, the two dates were about a month and a half apart. So going into the date, I didn't necessarily think that there was going to be a fit there, but I thought, you know, what the hey, we'll just go ahead with it and give it a go. And we had a really nice meal together. We had a great conversation. We were at the restaurant for nearly three hours. So it seemingly went well. When we parted ways, we walked to the train station together, gave each other a hug and said, you know, take care, basically. And I walked away thinking, ah, I don't think there's anything there, but, you know, she's nice, great. We're in a small little lesbian community. You want to sort of keep it amicable, keep it friendly. I figured our paths would cross again at some sort of function or bar or whatever it might be. So by the time I got home, I commuted about half an hour by the time I got home, this is the message I had from her. She says, thanks for an enjoyable evening. It was nice to catch up again. Would love to stay in touch as friends if you want to. But sadly, I don't think the chemistry is there for us to take it further. Hope you had a great time. Take care. Have a good week. That's the message I get from her. I mean, I get what she's doing. I think she's trying to say, you know, hey, I'm not feeling it. But at the same time, I think saying there's no chemistry is a little bit harsh. And I think... It's a pretty like forward form of rejection. I found it a little bit off-putting. I would have much preferred to her to just for her to just send me a message that says, you know, it was great to catch up again, great to connect. Let's definitely stay in touch as friends. Full stop. 
I would have gotten the picture and I would have agreed. And I do agree. Like I didn't feel chemistry there either, but I think saying, Oh, I'm not feeling the chemistry is a little bit harsh, a little bit judgmental. I don't know. I just don't like the way that comes across. Any thoughts on this one, Dan? I'm going to keep your call on file forever as evidence that there's literally no right way to break up with people. However you break up with people, however you let them down, let them down easy, let them down hard. It's not going to be well received. Not even in the case where someone is technically dumping someone who wants to be dumped. Someone is technically ending something that the other person wants ended or calling off something that hasn't really even started yet that the other person also wants called off. And even then, your feelings got hurt. Even then, they did it wrong. There's no way for anybody to break up with anybody, end a marriage, end a relationship, end it by text, end it in person, end it face-to-face. Uh, there's no right way to do it because nobody really wants it done. Not even someone who isn't interested in a relationship wants to hear, that was nice, no thanks, no chemistry, and they'll bitch and bitch and bitch about it. You did it wrong. She told the truth. Not only her truth, but your truth. There's no chemistry. That's exactly how you felt. All you needed to do, you should have written right back to her and said, you know, I was feeling the same way. I'm glad you said it. I was feeling the same way. You're awesome. Clearly, we're going to be friends. We have a rapport, a small community. Let's do dinner again and hang out and shoot the shit. And if I ever meet somebody who's right for you, that's not right for me. I will send them your way. And if you can do the same for me, that would be all. That's all you needed to say back. But you want to quibble about a couple of words in there? There's no chemistry there? That's harsh. There's no chemistry. That's true. That's exactly how you were feeling. Half the calls I get about breakups are, they didn't tell me why. There was mixed messages. I don't understand. I can't get closure because I don't know exactly the reason why they ended it or didn't want to go on another date with me. And I, I feel entitled to that information. And then people who are presented with that information, they call and bitch because it was hurtful to hear it. Oh, it's a mystery not to know, but it's painful to be told. Pick one. Everybody, all of you, all at once. Everybody has to pick one. You either want the, there's no chemistry there, no sexual spark, no attraction. Thank you very much for dinner. Let's have, be friends. Or you want the fadeaway that Garfunkel notes sing so beautifully about. You want the person to just sort of mysteriously evaporate, disappear, stop returning your texts, make non-committal responses to your direct questions, and leave you to wonder what the fuck the problem is. But you can't bitch about both. But people do. People get the exact reasons why they, somebody doesn't want to keep seeing them, and they bitch. They bitch even if they feel the exact same way. People get the fade away and they bitch. Because the problem is nobody wants to be rejected. Even somebody who isn't interested in that person doesn't want to be rejected by that person. Partly because on some level you wanted to reject her first. She beat you to it. Which may be part of what Bunched your panties up your crack about it. She beat you to it. She said there's no chemistry there before you got a chance to say it. And so she may assume that when you reply with the, I was feeling the same way that you're just saying that to save face, that you're so desperately attracted to her, right? It sort of leaves her in the power seat that she got to say it first. Because of course you're not in response going to say, but I felt chemistry. You're going to say, yeah, me too. And you always have this niggling sense in the back of your head that she may think she's all that. She may think that I'm really into her, that she beat me to the no chemistry. Just write her back and say, you know, I was feeling the same way. Small town, 
Friends are almost as hard to come by as lovers. Let's be friends. And you're a great person and a wonderful woman. And I will vouch for you if anyone asks and do the same for me. Let's be each other's wing girls uh, because lesbians in a small town need all the help they can get. And I'll be a help to you. You be a help to me. Let's go have dinner. Let's compare notes. And let's be friends. But don't go at her with, you did it wrong. You let me down wrong. You, there, you went into too much detail in the Brashov email. That'll just make you look petty and crazy. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-something-year-old heterosexual male from the grand old state of Idaho. And um, I'm calling because I have recently embraced the poly lifestyle and I have two relationships going where I am in loving relationships with two women, um, one of whom is currently married and, and um, another who has been in a long-term poly relationship. And I am trying to figure out how to reconcile something within myself. I, I enjoy being the other guy, and I don't feel any jealousy in regards to either my partner spending time with their current you know, significant others, their primary partners, if you will. But I'm having a problem with my, within myself where I feel like I might potentially become a primary partner with somebody. And the idea of being poly where I'm in a, a relationship with someone and I'm their primary and they find somebody else who they will genuinely enjoy and love and appreciate and will fill them in ways that I can't, which obviously is the idea of poly, it's kind of hurtful. And I guess I feel kind of conflicted because I feel like I am being hypocritical in that I enjoy this current um, set of relationships I have and, and being able to share experiences with these women that I love who have other partners. But I feel like I don't know that I would be able to be poly in a relationship where I'm the primary because I feel like I would be you know, kind of being replaced or something. And then I guess I'm just trying to reconcile this within myself because I'd like to be a better partner and I'd like to potentially find somebody who I can come home to instead of um, only being able to spend a certain amount of time with my current poly partners. And I need to come to terms with that. And I'm hoping you might be able to give me a little bit of advice and perhaps a little bit of direction and insight and help me come to terms with how I can be better at being poly. I'm going to do my specialty for you, which is a little bit of conflicting advice. Um, on the one hand, you know, it's fine that what you foresee for yourself is if you were in a committed relationship, you would like that relationship to be closed, that you would, when you see yourself in a committed relationship, it's perhaps not open, not poly, because if you were in a loving, committed, stable, go home to each other every night relationship, um, it wouldn't work for you, your partner getting certain intimate or sexual needs met elsewhere. You want to be someone's one and only fully aware that no one can be everything to someone else. So that will mean for both of you in a closed monogamous relationship, a little going without. But while you're single and not in a committed relationship, you're cool being the dick on the side for someone who is in an open relationship or someone who is in a poly relationship that allows for them to go elsewhere. You're fine being elsewhere. You're fine being that dick, right? But that wouldn't work for you in a committed relationship where you were someone's primary partner. Know thyself. You know thyself. Just figure out what works for you and do it in a loving, respectful, and honest way and communicate. So 
right now, as you're with these women, their male partners are fine with them doing uh, something, namely you, that you wouldn't be fine with if they were your primary partner. Is that hypocritical? Perhaps slightly, but relationships are about what works for people as individuals and know thyself and express thyself and communicate to your partners what makes you happy and be respectful and everything should be consensual and it's all good. On the other hand, here's the conflicting bit of advice, the the, the little shitball in your soul that you need to examine uh, is – you know, part of what I hear when a man says the things that you've just said is kind of sexist straight male ownership issues that you're fine with some other dude sharing his woman with you. You're fine to be that other guy. You're fine to be the elsewhere that she gets to go, but you would not be fine with your woman that you possess getting to go elsewhere. That if you were in a committed relationship, if you were the primary partner, it would make you very uncomfortable for your wife or girlfriend to do what your girlfriends, both of them right now, are doing to their male partners. And that is indeed a little hypocritical if that is the place that this reservation springs from, from a place of control and from a sexist place and a hypocritical double standard place. Then if you think about it and unpack it and examine it, maybe it'll wither. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe it'll evaporate. And you can then when you're in a committed relationship – and you are the primary partner, maybe you will be able to be the kind of partner that both your girlfriends already have at this moment, the kind of male partners, the kind of primary partners that they have. But if not, if you make an honest self-assessment, and this isn't about control, and it isn't about sexist double standards, and it isn't about your female partner when indeed you have a primary female partner being your possession, if this is just about what you want ultimately in a committed long-term relationship being different from what you want in a not committed long-term relationship, what you want as a primary being different than what you're happy with as a secondary, then that's fine. Just about knowing yourself and being honest and going about it in a respectful way. Good luck to you and all of your partners. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old female in a relationship for about two and a half years. We've been living together for one year in the house that my boyfriend owns. He's a little bit older than me. He's 29, and his sister is graduating from high school. She's 18, and my boyfriend wants her to move in with us while she goes to a community college nearby. Um, he sees it as a way to help his family. Um, I think it's a lot of responsibility to take on, but we're kind of at a standstill, and I don't know if it's unreasonable for me to move out and end the relationship without giving it a try. I think he's underestimating the responsibility of having an 18-year-old live with us, but would love to hear your take on it, whether or not having a sister move in is a big enough deal breaker for me to end the relationship. You know, he's not willing to, to have her not move in. If she moves in and it's a disaster, if she moves in and she's partying and bringing people to the house and, you know, fucking around and making a nuisance of herself and really imposing uh, and, and really disrupting uh, your life and your boyfriend's life, then she can move the fuck out. It's an invitation to come and stay. It's not a guarantee of accommodation for the next 24 months. But you are going right to worst case scenario. That, oh, he's underestimating the responsibility, blah, blah, blah. 
you could be overestimating the impact she'll have, overestimating the responsibility. Maybe she's quiet and studious. That said, I'm on your boyfriend's side. I think you're being unreasonable, and I think you're being dense, a little willfully dense. I don't know if you read the papers. I don't know if you follow the news, but there is so much sturm and drang, so much writing, uh, so much controversy about student loan debt, about the onerous fucking debt that we pile up on young people who want to go to college these days. It's insanely expensive. Even to go to community colleges, it is insanely expensive. So whatever family can do to help each other out, whatever your boyfriend can do for his sister to ensure that she get through some of these years, community college, if she's doing a couple years of community college before going to a state school or upgrading to a more expensive university, if he can help her out and help her get to the end of that process debt-free, that's what family should do. He has an obligation and a responsibility to her as her brother that if he's in a position to offer her this kind of assistance, a, a kind of assistance that will save her from the crushing debt that so many of her peers are experiencing, so many of her peers are having their lives warped and limited by, that's great. And he should fucking do it. And you should look at him and think, wow, what a great guy I'm with. I'm with a great guy. I'm with a guy who does the right thing by the people that he loves, including his little sister. That means, by inference, he will do the right thing by me as his girlfriend and partner. So I am not going to be small about this. I am not going to be a pain in the ass about this. I'm going to do what I can to help make this work because he's doing the right thing by his loved ones. And I'm one of his loved ones. The end. And it's a small thing. He's not moving a grandparent with dementia into the house. It's not open-ended and forever. It's a year or two. You could end up liking this girl very much if you gave her a chance and if she moves in and she's a raging fucking bitch, she can move the fuck out, but don't sabotage it. Don't provoke her. Don't be a bitch. And then bitch about her being a bitch back at you. And if you can't not be a bitch about it end the relationship, do him that favor. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy app risk youth. This is a 26 year old bisexual female living in the Bay area in a committed monogamous relationship. And I have a question about breakups. Um, a little background on my relationship. My girlfriend and I have been off and on for about five to six years, but currently we have been um, committed and monogamous for about a year and a half. Um, ever since we moved in together about six months ago and moved up to this Bay Area together, she has had a lot of insecurities about our relationship. Um, I have never given her any reason to do so. Um, I'm come home every night and we do everything together, but because of our uh, largely differing schedules, unfortunately, um, we don't get to spend as much time together as she would like, and it makes her a little insecure. Recently, she decided to go through my phone, and of course, every time you go looking for something, you do find something, and she happened upon a conversation that I had with a friend of mine basically just talking about this really innocent little crush that I had on this guy at work. It was never going to be anything, didn't want it to be anything, but it is what it is. It was a, a human crush on another human, which in my opinion is allowed. She has obviously freaked out and 
to make things even more complicated, I, six years ago, was her very, very, very first love. And so there's a lot of emotional baggage in our relationship. In my opinion, this is grounds for a breakup. And it's not just because of the snooping. It's more because it is a blatant disrespect and disregard of my trust. Just need a little help on this and hoping that um, I'm not being overdramatic, but I definitely think that along with other things that have happened in the relationship, that this is grounds for a dismissal. You don't need grounds to dump someone. You can dump someone for any reason. You don't need an indictable offense. You don't need to bring charges. You don't need evidence. All you need is a desire to end it. And it sounds like you have that desire. And if what you're looking for is permission, permission granted, you can dump your girlfriend who is being irrational and insecure in ways that are deeply and poisonously unattractive in ways that really can snuff out someone's affections. Um, but I don't think that there's a blatant disrespect and disregard here of your trust. I think there's a blatant disregard and disrespect here of reality. And that's what you should say to her on the way out. Now that you violated my trust, you looked at my phone, everybody fucking snoops a little bit. But what you discovered in my phone is something that you goddamn well should have known to be true and will be true of anyone you ever date. Anyone you're ever with in your entire fucking life is going to have crushes on other people. And if that by itself is reason enough to be a raging psycho, reason enough to have these fits, reason enough to push somebody to the brink of breaking up with you, do yourself and anybody else you might ever date a favor and don't ever date anyone else. Because everyone you're ever with is going to want to fuck other people. Everyone you're ever with is going to have crushes, innocent crushes, innocent flirtations with other people. So what you discovered looking through my phone six years into our relationship is something that you should have presumed I had experienced. And you know what? I've already experienced it many times. Add that. There have been other people I've had crushes on, never acted on it because I love you, loved you, past tense. And just on the way out the door, rubber nose in it just a little bit that she needs to get over this, that she will fall in love with someone else and so will you. And that person that she falls in love with will develop innocent crushes on other people because we do, because we are human. Because a monogamous commitment doesn't mean you don't want to fuck other people. It means you refrain from fucking other people. You will still meet people that you are attracted to. You will still meet people that you have a rapport with. You will still meet people and you will say, if you've made a monogamous commitment that you are honoring, you will meet people that you say, if I wasn't in this relationship, that means so much to me, I would be fucking this person. I would be dating this person. And she can't wrap her head around that not only has her irrationality and insecurity cost her this relationship it will cost her every relationship she is ever in as well it should hi dan um i have a question for uh gay parents that hopefully you can answer my wife and i have been together for four years we have two young children um under the age of two uh, Mother's Day just passed uh, with uh, both of us just exhausted and um, I think with us both being moms, neither one of us celebrating. Uh, and I get a little jealous. Uh, you know, I see on Facebook my friends who have male partners, you know, scrolling through being like, oh, my husband or my boyfriend bought me breakfast in bed with the kids, uh, et cetera. And it seems like uh, with two moms, uh, neither one of us gets any celebration. So I was curious how uh, other gay parents 
um, celebrate these sort of parental high holidays. Um, I suggested to my wife, uh, one of us taking Father's Day and calling it Other Mother's Day, uh, which she thought was uh, a little ridiculous and too alternative and over the top. So I was just curious uh, what other gay parents do, what you and Carrie do. I love the idea of Other Mother's Day. I think that's really cute and charming. Perhaps your wife reacted to it negatively because she's exhausted because you have two young children. Uh, Terry and I are bad people to come to for solutions about how you solve this kind of crisis uh, because we don't celebrate anniversaries. We don't celebrate Father's Day. We do nothing on Valentine's Day. Christmas, we do. And Halloween, we do. Everything else, you don't want the calendar littered with holy days of fucking obligation where you just feel like you're going to fail, where you have to go through the motions and hit these marks to demonstrate what shit you should be demonstrating every goddamn day that you love and care for each other and take care of each other and go out of your way to take care of each other and just grabbing some day on the calendar and declaring it mother's day or secretary's day or father's day or whatever the fuck day I must be missing the gene that, that that taps into that works for that. So, so we're bad examples, but clearly it means something to you. You would like there to be a day where your role as mother uh, is honored and celebrated and your partner's role as mother is honored and celebrated. And because you both can't simultaneously bring each other breakfast in bed, you need two days. So either pick Saturday and Sunday and call it mother's weekend and Saturday's yours and Sunday's hers or grab Father's Day and put it to use because Father's Day certainly isn't going to get much play in your house. Or just let it go and don't give a shit and bring each other breakfast in bed every once in a while just fucking because. Teach your kids that that kind of gesture, that kind of loving gesture is something you don't need Hallmark to elbow you in the ribs and remind you to do. But that's something that you can do on any random fucking Wednesday. That's how we do it. Breakfast in bed is gross. Bed is bed is not a place for eating. Bed is about the one place we Americans aren't fucking filling our faces with food. And we should honor that and keep it holy. And it should be a place for sleeping or reading or maybe watching a little TV or fucking each other. But breakfast? Who wants to eat the instant they wake up? You want to wander around? You want to have a cup of coffee? You want to look at the paper for a second? Nobody's eyes pop open and then they start shoving food in their mouth. Unless they have a problem. So find a better way to honor moms on mom's day than bringing them fucking pancakes in bed and getting syrup in the sheets. Blah. Hi, Dan. I'm an 18-year-old male virgin living in Oregon. Uh, after I get an erection while masturbating, which usually only takes a couple minutes using softcore visual shit, I very quickly reach a point where any touch on my dick will make me cum. Squeezing it, gently choking the shaft, or touching it with even one finger, they all set me off. This makes me very concerned about premature ejaculation when the time comes for me to have actual two-person sex. I mean, if I come this fast while masturbating softly and slowly alone, I, I don't use any of that death grip shit. What will happen when I have the uber-arousing excitement of a naked body in front of me? I know you say the dick is like Tinkerbell, and I try really hard to not believe in it too much so Tinkerbell doesn't get ahead of herself, but try what I may, edging, not using porn, thinking about my grandma. I still get to that verge after I get an erection in a matter of minutes or or even seconds. The other weird thing 
which may or may not be related, is that after doing ab workouts for a while, 45 minutes or so, I'll start doing leg lifts and out of nowhere my legs get very shaky and I ejaculate. But my cock is still totally flaccid and the orgasm is super intense. So should I be concerned about premature problems during sex? What can I do to last longer while masturbating? Do I have a problem? I mean, and what the fuck is the deal with the corgasm thing? Does my body just like to come too much? Joining us by phone, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, research scientist at Indiana University, author of Sex Made Easy, numerous other books, including uh, the really terrific, uh, for the ladies, Because It Feels Good, A Woman's Guide to Sexual Pleasure and Satisfaction. Uh, Thanks for jumping on the phone, Debbie. Thanks for having me. Frequent guest, friend of the show, friend of the column. And uh, you've done some research and studies about the, the phenomenon of corgasms or exercise-induced orgasms. And I, it, was, it was my impression that this was something that uh, women experienced but not men. You know, that was our original impression too. And so our first study, we only recruited women to be part of the survey. This was several years ago. And when our study came out, it got lots of media attention, which was great because the best thing it did was it drew tons of men from around the world to find me, Google me, and send me a note telling me that, hey, this happens to them too. And before that, we really didn't know that men also had corgasms. Now, we may be getting the card in front of the horse. What is a corgasm and how do you have one? Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a good question, and it's a you know topic of continued research for us. So the best way that we're thinking about it right now is that you know it is a type of orgasm that people experience. That orgasms aren't just about sex, but you're you know they can be triggered in many ways, and they seem to involve the core abdominal muscles. And there's a whole bunch of muscles in this in this area of the body that we would consider the core. Um, and so you know they seem to be linked to like a lot of fatigue. And so it's not like it, for most people, this isn't going to happen after one sit-up or two or three crunches or something like that. It happens after some time um, that people start to feel, um, you know, these kind of actually lower abdominal feelings first and then eventually the general sensations in the orgasm. Crazy. It is crazy and it's fascinating and yeah. I, I feel so cheated because I'm a, I'm a regular gym goer and I have never ejaculated at the gym. I've never spontaneously climaxed. And it's tough for men because for many women, they're not so distressed by it if it happens because women can be a little bit more private. But for many men, the fact that they do ejaculate means that, you know, if they can't control it in a public place, that it kind of bothers them because they want to be able to suppress it if it starts to happen. Now, is it typical, uh, this kid, and we'll get to his other problems in a second, 18 years old, doing these 45-minute ab workouts, I want to see a picture of his stomach. <laughs> you know, picture that didn't happen if you're doing 45 minute ab workouts. He says he's not erect. He doesn't. His dick doesn't get hard, but he has an orgasm. He ejaculates. Yeah, exactly. And that's a common, common story for men in their orgasms. They almost never get erect. They're just going from this really intense ab workout, and then it goes into ejaculation. And this isn't about some sort of erotic feedback loop with the brain, because people don't report that they're thinking dirty thoughts or fantasizing. Nope. It's just some sort of physical, physiological all-body sensation response? Is it an override? Is it because, ab? you know, when you fuck somebody or you're getting fucked, you're, you know, your core is engaged. Is it some sort of, you know, bank shot, uh, sense memory, muscle memory thing that's going on with people's genitals? Yeah, so, so one of the ideas is that we think it may be related to the sympathetic nervous system. And so there have been a few studies in the past that really weren't focused on exercise specifically, um, but they were looking at ways like if you activate the sympathetic nervous system, can you enhance arousal? 
And in some of these studies, they used uh, walking as an exercise, walking on a treadmill. And in another one, they just had women hyperventilate. And so what we know is, you know, that spending some time in exercise can activate the sympathetic nervous system. And there may be some portion of people that this, you know, it's just a much easier trigger for them. So in our recent national study, we asked people um, if they've ever had these orgasms during exercise. And we had about 10% of women and men who said that it had happened to them at least once. Wow, 10%. And we never hear about this. Your studies are... No, no. And it's, you know... Yeah, it's a much smaller percent of people that have had it happen to them a lot in life, but still 10% is not small. It isn't. Is it just shame that has prevented people from opening up or talking about this in the past? Like they feel guilty about this random exercise-induced orgasm that they experience? Like their body betrayed them or they're... They're, they're, they're so... Yeah, they feel strange sometimes, especially the last summer I actually spent, you know, everyone's got to do something on their summer vacation, and I spent my summer interviewing women, actually, about um, orgasms. And, you know, for some women, they do experience uh, orgasm through masturbation and sex with a partner, but then there's this other chunk of women who don't have orgasm any other way, and those are the ones who tend to be a little bit more bothered. You know, they don't understand, like... Why is my body, you know, completely able to do this during exercise when I'm doing sit-ups or using the captain's chair, but I can't do this when I want to, which is with, you know, the partner during masturbation. And so what we also found in this newer study, the national one, is that both women and men who have regular kind of orgasms in their lives are more likely to fake orgasm when they have sex. And we think in part that's because they're really kind of, you know, when they're not able to do it during sex with a partner, that maybe they feel like, gosh, what's wrong with my body? Maybe more subconscious. Mm. And then they're more likely to, to pretend. Is there anything for this kid about his orgasms that he needs to worry about? Or is it no, just there's, a, nothing, like a there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, there's nothing to worry about, um, except, you know, if he is embarrassed that this happens publicly, then he just may want to stop before it gets to that point. Um, but, but, but there's nothing unhealthy about this. Or do your crunches at home. Get a yoga mat. Do it at home. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, about his premature ejaculation problem, or if that's what we're going to call it, it sounds very much like a premature ejaculation problem in the making. If he, you know, he fantasizes, he, the instant he gets erect, when he's fully erect, any touch at all, and he comes. Yeah, yeah, he sounds very sensitive. This is an intractable problem. I, you know, in all these years I've been writing Savage Love and talking to people about this, there doesn't seem to be a good answer that turns a premature ejaculator into somebody who can go 15 minutes or 20 minutes. But I mean, he's young, you know, so it, so it may work itself out over time. It often does for a lot of people. I think he's, you know, only 18 years old, so that may change. Um, but you're right that often some of the strategies that are helpful are sometimes only helpful for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he, he may he may end up over time finding that he's not so sensitive. I've certainly heard many guys say that. Um, but, it, but it's tricky, and he may have to explore the different masturbation techniques and so on. Um, you know, if he's really, really sensitive, he might even consider asking a dermatologist. Um, to see if there might be something particular going on with his penis and his skin sensation. But my guess is it's not. I mean, he's just got to kind of learn, you know, how his body works. And it's also okay if you come quickly. I think there's still this huge concern, especially with very young men, that kind of sex is just awful if they come quickly. But it's just how some people's bodies are. I think the problem with some people who come quickly is that then they stop that you can have that first orgasm, particularly when you're 18. And it could be a hair trigger problem. Some people when they're young and they're masturbating, uh, particularly males, can have a hair trigger sort of – because there's just so much excitement because there's so much going on in their nuts and their guts. Yeah. In this case, that they're they're on a hair trigger. And that can become less of a problem as you age a little bit. But Mm -hmm. 
the advice I often give to guys who have premature ejaculation problems into later life is that's how your dick works. And you know how your dick works works now. So get her off first or get him off first or have a bunch of toys around. And then you dive in at the, you know, moment of climax or, you know, when you, when, when you coming would be the appropriate next step, dive in, have your orgasm or have an orgasm earlier and get another hard on You're 18, 19 years old. When you get to partner in sex, and if you're doing 45 minutes worth of crunches every day at the gym, you're going to get to it pretty quickly. If you get to partnered sex, then you come first and then you keep going. You keep pleasuring your partner. You keep rolling around and being intimate. And your refractory period, particularly when you're 18, is going to be brief. And you'll get another boner. And it may last a little longer, that second boner. Yeah, it should. And even if you don't get another erection quickly, it's exactly what you said. You know, roll around, kiss, like touch, have oral sex, do all kinds of things. But, you know, it's not selfish. I often hear the word selfish. It's not selfish to come quickly. What's selfish is to come quickly and then just, like, pack your bags and leave. You know, hang out and see what else your partner wants to do, but don't don't give up. But we do need to acknowledge that men, when they climax, uh, there's that uh, hormone prolactin that's released into their system that sends their boner south, sends it away. It also creates kind of a momentary, uh, not revulsion, but just sort of disinterest in sex that can be sort of interpreted as revulsion. Like, I'm not into this right now. I'm not into this anymore. And that's that pack the bags moment for a lot of guys where they're like up and out. And women don't have that. Women, you know, come and can come again and can come again and can really stay in a groove and stay in the game. And guys, if you just understand that there's going to be this wave of a hormone that shoots through your body that kills your boner temporarily and also makes you disinterested in sex temporarily and just sort of like power through that, just keep rolling, it'll kick back in. Yeah, and actually, you know, and women, women are like the masters at trying to get into sex even when they're not into it. Right, so we actually have a lot of experience doing that. As a, as, as a, it's true, right? I mean, you, you know, and our rates are far, far, far more than men. When you ask women, well, why did you have sex on this occasion? They'll say, well, it's because I'm a girlfriend, you know, I'm his or her girlfriend or wife, or this is what you do when you're married, or well, you know, my partner wanted to, and and they do it when when they're not into it sometimes too. So women are really good at that, and so. But, but I think many men haven't been kind of raised with that same scale or felt pressured with that same thing. But the idea is that, you know, if you act into it and you start getting into it, often not, you know, often the real desire and arousal follows. So not giving up and being good about it is being a good partner. As a sex researcher, you know, there's this cliche. I've heard this a million times. I've probably said it a million times, too. Men get horny and then want to have sex. Women start having sex and then get horny. What's your sex researcher, Kinsey Institute, professional opinion of that read on male-female sexuality? Yeah, it's, it's true for a large portion of women. Yeah, there's a, there have been research studies where they ask women kind of which model of arousal, you know, feels right to you and they describe them. And one of them is that exact one where sort of you start and then you get into it. And I think it was maybe somewhere around a third of women who felt that they identified with that one. Okay. Any last bits of advice for this caller? No, no, just be open to it. I mean, you're 18, you know, you're, you don't even know yet what your sex life is going to unfold as, but just be open to it. And be open to being a premature ejaculator. I think we need premature ejaculator pride. And we should stop calling it premature. We should just call it, I don't know, insta or something. Say rapid. I mean, it is quick, right? But quick doesn't have to be bad. I mean, if it was, if women were having quick ones, people would just be like thrilled, which is another weird thing about this whole gender stuff with orgasms. Right. So you can still be a great lover. You're just going to need a whole other bag of tricks and accommodations and keep going. And you're going to need other and better game 
if you can't mm-hmm. just rely on your dick to go for 20 minutes or whatever the average Which is. is. And I don't think it's 20 minutes. It's a gift, really. It is a gift because it's going to cause you to be more creative and more inventive and ultimately then more fun in bed. Dr. Debbie Herbenick, research scientist at Indiana University. Uh, check out her books. They're really great. Sex Made Easy, uh, Because It Feels Good, and many others. Go to Amazon and look up Debbie Herbenick. Uh, thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Debbie. It's always so great to talk to you. Thanks. Take care. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight female in my early 20s, calling with kind of a revelation that's creating some problems. So um, when I was in high school, I was always attracted to the kind of shy, nerdy, not very conventionally attractive guys. Um, and I had a lot of self-esteem issues, so I kind of attributed it to that. Plus, these were just the guys who I knew when I was friends. I was a shy, nerdy, like, somewhat uh, conventionally unattractive girl. So, I, like, those were my people. Um, and since then, I um, kind of, like, bloomed, I guess. And um, I became much more um, socially aware and conventionally attractive and all the rest. Um, but I was still attracted to that type of guy. And it was one of those things where I felt like I so frequently received some sort of social uh, punishment for that. Like if I pursued the nerdy guy in a bar, my friends would definitely look taken aback and look kind of confused. Um, And because these aren't usually like the hot nerds I'm attracted to. These are like overweight, a little bit like strong featured um, guys are like, that's my type. I'm into this. Um, But in any case, what that means is that I feel like I'm fighting this attraction. I'm not attracted to the, like, ripped guys um, who my friends are into in bars. But I feel like this is a really hard thing to date because I receive such, like, social retribution from friends who aren't particularly superficial. They just think that I am settling or have low self-esteem or that I um, am, like, putting myself short and all this stuff, selling myself short. So I'm calling to you because I want to know what should I do in this situation? How can I sort of describe that this is my type without me coming across as like this sad girl afraid of rejection? The only reason I'm playing this call is to give hope to all the nerdy guys out there, all the strong featured overweight Game of Thrones fans, wherever you are. There are conventionally attractive hot girls out there who genuinely want to fuck the shit out of you. As for you, caller, this is kind of a non-problem. You say you've suffered social retribution bullshit. Nobody's breaking your windows. Nobody's passing amendments to ban hot girl, nerdy guy marriage in this country. All that's happening is your friends are a little mystified because your taste in men is a little unconventional. And it isn't retribution when they throw it out there like, you're into him? Like, what's up? They're just looking for an explanation. They're looking for a justification. They're making fucking conversation. Right. So when they say, really him, you say, yeah, all my life, I've always been attracted to kind of like slightly bigger nerdy dudes. Always. They're my type. And so I'm not going to compete with you for the hot ripped athlete boy. You go fucking get him. I'm going to go talk to the schlub in the corner who's cute and charming and hot in ways that only I can perceive. And finally, I mean, come the fuck on. You're really you're calling me with this problem. Me who, you know, it wasn't just my friends who had a problem with the the guys I was attracted to. My parents did. My church did. The Republican Party did. Random gay bashing bigots on the street did. Gay people who've come out uh, and date who they want to date have stared down violent social retribution. You can look at your friends and say, I like what I like. Fuck the fuck off already about it. And not have to explain it away and not have to worry about them thinking that you're 
insecure or self-hating. No one's going to pack you off to an insane asylum and have you lobotomized, which was regularly happening to gays and lesbians in this country a generation or two ago. You like what you like. You like the dick that you like. You like the dudes those dicks are attached to. Go like it. Stop apologizing for it. Stop wringing your hands about it. Hi, Dan. I would like you to help me with a PSA. Uh, I am a guy in his mid-30s, and I have been a college professor for about 13 years. And you don't know how many times I have been asked the question, something of the type, how much action do you get from cute college girls? I just wanted to say something. Any university campus is full of young people, many of them quite attractive. As a professor, that is one of the perks of the job. Whatever your taste, there will be plenty of students uh, you will find attractive. And personally, I admit I indulge in discreet appreciation from time to time. Nevertheless, even when the largest majority of university professors do not take advantage of the power imbalance in our relationship uh, with the students to get sexual favors, yes, most universities have uh, the policy that whatever happens between consenting adults where there is no conflict of interest is fair games. But it is a minority of professors who have consenting relationships with current students. I know, unfortunately, there are some in the guild that do take advantage of some students with some sort of quid pro quo type deals. That is profoundly unethical and completely unexcusable. Believe it or not, those cases are much more rare than people think. These bad apples are unfortunately quite visible, but uh, a very small minority nonetheless. Please stop asking your pal who is a university professor whether he or she fucks tons of hot college uh, students. Whatever, whatever the answer we give, we feel even insulted to even being asked the question. My impression of the whole sort of uh, college student, professor student thing is actually the flip side of yours, uh, the, the way you frame it. I don't hear from college professors or university professors who want to fuck their students. I'm constantly hearing from students who want to fuck their professors. They're the ones that write me and say, there's a TA or my college professor. How long should I wait after this course? Should I wait till this course is over? I get those letters constantly. I don't get letters from university professors saying there's this girl in my class that I must fuck and what should I do? Um, I'm thinking back, like flipping through the Rolodex in my head. I'm thinking back to the few letters I have received from university professors and usually it's uh, it's a problem for them that they're being hit on by some student and not a problem for them that there's some student that they want to fuck. So I never ask college professors if they fuck tons of hot college students. It wouldn't even occur to me to ask college professors if they fuck tons of hot college students. I, I go to college campuses every once in a while. I see all the hotties around. I understand that it would be distracting for me personally to work in that environment. But I think that college profs are professionals and they keep it in their pants and most of them probably don't even want to fuck their students. So that being my frame that I hear from students who want to fuck their professors, not professors who want to fuck their students, I would never ask a professor how many students they've fucked. But I would ask students, have you ever fucked a professor? In fact, I just did. So if you ever fucked a professor successfully, if it was good for you, if it was great, if you ever were the aggressor as a student in a university environment, if you ever went after a professor or a TA and landed the motherfucker, give us a call and tell us about it. We want to hear your story. We'll put it on the end of the show. 206-201-2720. But don't ask your professors if they've ever fucked a student. That's rude. But asking students if you've ever fucked a professor, that we can do.
This call is in response to the woman in episode 395 who had the massage. Even though the therapist asked and you gave consent, this was completely unacceptable. A true massage therapist should never initiate or accept sexual contact from a client. Not only could he lose his job and his license, he could be labeled a sex offender. Male massage therapists, like my husband, face heavy discrimination and mistrust, and every incident like this like this makes it harder for the good ones to find and keep work. If you like this guy and you want to see him again, do it outside the context of professional massage therapy. You can have him come to your house and set up a massage table and role play like you're in a professional massage studio, but don't risk him losing his job and don't risk the jobs of other therapists who know better and who have boundaries. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a licensed massage therapist, and I'm sure you've heard from hundreds of us, but I had to add my two cents because what that therapist did basically was ruin the massage experience for your caller. She said that you know, she was nervous about going back to see him, and also she, he's made it harder for the rest of us to practice safely because he broke the cardinal rule of massage therapy. He put his needs in front of the client's needs. He took advantage of the emotional and the physical power differential that exists between a therapist and the client. And the next woman who he does this to, and, and make no mistake, he's going to do this again, may not feel like she can say no. So my tip for your caller is to contact her state's licensing bureau's Office of Professional Discipline and file a formal complaint to call the therapist's place of employment and get his ass fired because the best tip that she can give him is to prevent him from committing a sexual assault of a woman who may not be as GGG as your caller is. Hi, Dan. I just wanted to say, as a woman who has never previously considered um, patronizing a sex worker, wow, does that not sound amazing as a form of sex work that really caters well to women. In terms of um, having that thing that's pretty common in terms of um, something that women use as a way to decompress and de-stress, a profession that already has a lot of men in it who really understand women's bodies and are really about pleasing women, um, and then adding this, um, this component to it that just Wow, it sounds fantastic. But I wonder if we could maybe create some new category of massage that um, is erotic massage, but that is a lot more about the foreplay in terms of the actual well-delivered massage that precedes any kind of erotic action. Um, and if we can create that category, please, can we funnel some workers into that category? Because I think that I'm not alone in thinking that this is something that would definitely find its way into my budget. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. My latest book, American Savage, is out in paperback starting now, this week. Actually, May 27th. Today, uh, American Savage comes out in paperback. Get it at Amazon.com or support your local independent bookstore and go there and get American Savage. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow this week's guest expert, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, on Twitter at Debbie Herbenick. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.